a message from our sponsor, Riverview Boat Store and Tug Service. Riverview Boat Store and Tug Service has been your trusted marine supplier servicing the Upper Mississippi River for over 25 years. Since 1998, they have grown to be one of the largest inland boat stores. They are not just a delivery service. They have what you need in stock and ready to order. Their office and warehouse are centrally located in Bellevue, Iowa, and with their fleet of specially built delivery boats and refrigerated vehicles, Riverview can conveniently deliver groceries anywhere on the Upper Miss or the Illinois. Their green and white tugs can be found up and down the Mississippi, and they operate one of the largest lock assist businesses on the Upper Miss with 12 tugs servicing tows from Hastings, Minnesota to Clinton, Iowa. Their website now includes online grocery ordering with monthly specials available for review or download, and their fleet equipment information and vessel telephone numbers can also be found there. Like them on Facebook at Riverview Boat Store and Tug Service, and check out their website at www.riverviewboatstore.com. Welcome back to Between the Levees. I am joined today by Mr. Brandon Hanson, a retired Coast Guard vet and the health and safety manager for Artco's Line Boats. Mr. Hanson, thank you for joining me yet again. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, thank you. And um, everything that I've heard with Between the Levee has been, um, I've got a lot of value and enjoyment out of listening to your podcast. So thank you for the opportunity to be here, and uh, love to give back. Well, I appreciate your time uh, yet again. Of course, last time we had technical issues right and left. So thanks again for coming on. Do you have a favorite episode of mine? So the one with QM2 um, Cohen Beach. Bush. Um, Cohen Bush. Yeah, Bush. And the thing about it is, is I'm a, about a decade behind him. And our, um, the Coast Guard principles and philosophies of having to go out, not having to come back. Uh, that's what I grew up with. I, was, uh, I would say that's a transition of the old guard to what we have now, uh, the new guard. So, and then having his time in the Pacific Rim, I spent a lot of time in Guam, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii. So half my career was on a tropical island. So it was, it was nice. And then I was familiar with those buoy tenders and the dive teams. So he brought a lot of good memories back and uh, shout out to him. Um, and uh, I appreciate it. Have you seen his follow-up visit? I have not. Is he, does he have another podcast out? You should watch. Okay. That sounds good. I look forward to it. Um, I started the Coast Guard in 1991, right after high school at my first failed attempt at college. Uh, I am married. We have five children. So my daughter's a Beluga Well trainer in Iceland, and she started with the, the Navy program there on the Florida Georgia line at a, sub, a submarine base. And she did that for several years. It was a goal of hers. It was to from the age of three, she wanted to be a dolphin trainer and she pulled it off and she wanted to do orca whales, but hey, beluga whales are just as close in size and uh, they actually have a better attitude and personality in my opinion. What drew her to that? About uh, three years old, plus or minus a little bit. We were down in Florida or she was down in Florida and they, uh, they did the uh, discovery dolphin encounters. So she was introduced to dolphins at a very young age, and she said, I want to do that. And through support and education, and ironically, it's not marine biology, it's behavior. So she has a psychology major and a Spanish minor, and she's living her dream. And I can't complain. It's really neat. It's an adventure um, that is awesome, and I encourage it. It's nice. And then my uh, oldest son, he's a police officer. He did his, uh, he did his time 
um, went to the police academy and went to college and got his uh, law enforcement education. He's working on his bachelor's right now. And so he's successful in doing his thing. He's a homeowner. And uh, about 22, she's 25. And then the other two kiddos, one's in nursing school in California, and the other one is going to Mizzou, uh, Missouri, and he's studying mechanical engineering. And then our youngest, uh, 17, just graduated high school early. Uh, pandemic allowed some um, fast track on finishing up school. So she's done and we're working on her transition to what she wants to do. We haven't figured that out yet, whether it's uh, becoming a truck driver or going to college, we're still figuring that out. And then we do have, we have a foster now and we foster two children prior to this, this recent event. So that's family. Are you looking forward to uh, an empty nest? Well, I said, you, you said you're fostering. How old are the foster children? We're about, we're on the, we're on the downhill slide of the fostering process. And exactly what you're saying is it's a lot of work. We're getting older and we don't have the energy to take care of kids. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. It, and they require a lot more, um, our five kids were fine. Our, the fosters have taken a lot of additional effort. What brought you to fostering? There was a need. We wanted to continue our family. And the fostering allowed us to help kids in the transition. And as we found out, there's a lot of kids in need. And we just had an opportunity to provide a home and provide them extracurricular activities. with Because we're on a lake. We have a, we have a boat. We have a wakeboard boat. And um, we have a, just a nice backyard. And so we were just trying to help out and fill the void, but uh, we've been doing it for several years and we're just kind of at the, uh, we're getting older. Well, did you start that process while still in the Coast Guard? Yes. So we probably started maybe five years ago. Don't quote me on that date. And it, it was a lot of weekends uh all day events saturday and sunday to go through the training to get certified and then then you're in the in a holding pattern for when when foster kids need a home and they call you up and, and you bring them in and we did long care a uh, long-term care so that was our choice not just a, the critical weekend where they're in a bad situation they need to find a temporary home we want to make sure that we had the longevity and then so we were just a placeholder allowing them to develop um and then our like I'll give you an example. Our most recent uh, foster, uh, we had a lot of phenomenal um, responses when, when we brought her into our home. So the counseling and everything else was more of checking the box. It wasn't needed. So I think we, if I can use a term that should be used only in um, aircraft, dogfighting and military and police, but we, um, we did a tactical withdrawal. And that, that process began, you said, when your youngest, if my math is right, your youngest was 12? Yeah, that's about right. 12, 13. Yeah. So I'm going to change gears on you. This is Harvey. He's named after Hurricane Harvey. So after I responded to that, we, we got him to just be a little bit of a, a help around the house. So this is Harvey. We picked him up. Weeks after Hurricane Harvey, because I was down there for several weeks doing recovery operations. Harvey and Stella. Okay. He's a handsome one. Stella's, Stella's full of pieces and parts. So she's still cute and adorable, but. Sure. Tell me, sir. Tia. She's our daughter's dog who's in Iceland, who was very challenging to get him out there, by the way. Well, let's begin, sir. Tell me, where were you born? 
So I was born in a small beach community in Southern California, right in between LA and San Diego, a beach town called San Clemente. Uh, I could hear the sea lions bark in the evening. Um, and I grew up surfing and um, diving and free diving, a lot of abalone and lobster in my, uh, in my youth and spearfishing. And I am very fortunate for that. What was life growing up out there? It's the best weather one can ever encounter. I will give you a close, I would say it's equal. Hawaii has trade winds that has the breeze and the temperature is, is very, very low. Uh, it doesn't get as cold as California. Um, but I mean, Southern California, it never rains. And um, I could literally go to school and surf in the evening. And, and it, was just, it was just very fortunate along with the other duty stations that I was able to uh, go to. Uh, half my career was on a tropical island, so a lot of surfing and diving, which was a priority in boating, of course. Were you drawn to anything in school? Uh, auto shop. Ironically, uh, I did AP Auto in high school, which was college credits. Uh, it was two hours. Uh, regular classes were fine. I did my English, my math. I passed. I graduated. Didn't do real well at my first attempt at college, so um, I um, was pursuing real estate. Ironically, in the state of California, you can actually get a bachelor's degree in in, in real estate. And my father had a company did uh, he did uh, real estate and he had a brokerage along with a uh, Greyhound Depot, Western Union, and UPS, which I grew up uh, working there at like the age of twelve. Kind of a neat opportunity, if I can say that. Well, you mentioned a, an attempt at college. Tell me about that. So we had Saddleback Junior College. Uh, I did uh, swim and do, do some uh, diving and water polo with them for just the first year, but I didn't show up to class. So I primarily didn't realize, you know, you're young and, and you have all these other, whatever you want to call it, priorities. So mine wasn't going to class. It was mainly surfing, diving and um, just hanging out. So I found myself, but uh, didn't really have a whole lot of options. So I was 19 and I joined the Coast Guard. Ironically, I did attempt to do the Navy because the Coast Guard had a six month wait, but I uh, wanted to, um, anyways, they didn't have what I was, was interested in, in pursuing as a career or a temporary career. Joined the Coast Guard at 19 in 1991. And then I uh, went to basic training, Cape May, New Jersey. And then uh, soon after that, so we have Coast Guard and Navy have ratings. The other services call them MLSs. So um, I was a seaman. And then I was on a 210-foot ship out of St. Petersburg, Florida. So everything we have primarily, 378 means the ship's 378 feet long. So I was on a 210-foot um, Coast Guard cutter. Spent a lot of time in the Caribbean. Uh, ironically, when we were trying to do our drug patrols further down south, we were met with a lot of uh, uh, immigrants that we had to bring back um, to the mainland. And unfortunately, most of the time, if not nine times out of 10, uh, their boat was in bad shape. So their chances of survival were really limited. So a lot of it was more of a rescue aspect because their boat was halfway underwater and they were up to their waist in water at the half the time, which that was annoying, unfortunately. 
Tell me a little bit about your time in basic. Well, basic training, uh, I will say this. I don't know firsthand, but the Marine Corps has been labeled the most physically demanding basic training program. They're longer. They have the physical fitness requirement that is, is top notch. And everybody I've talked to uh, seems to lean towards that. Uh, Coast Guard is an academic um, so they have a lot more administrative testing and everything else. So they fall under a, a high category of people basically leaving it compared to the other services on knowledge history, which is interesting because with the exception of the Air Force, Air Force has high test scores to get in that ASVAB. Uh, Coast Guard really has low test scores. It's usually because they're hurting for people. So sometimes you're lucky to get into a job that you may not have tested out properly because of the needs. Uh, but for me, uh, I never had any issues on my test scores. I, I was eligible for any rating. And I wanted to jump out of helicopters and rescue people. The lifeguard at the age of 16 for a couple of years, and I got my EMT at 18. And uh, unfortunately, after basic training, because they don't have guaranteed school for a lot of the schools that you want to go to, they don't have, you have to go into the field and, and work for a period of time before you're eligible to go to an A school, what they call it. And uh, they didn't have that for aviation. So I was going to have to go to the fleet and work my time there. And I wasn't going to wait three years uh, to jump out of helicopters to rescue people. I, my original intent was to do my four years, get money for college, do the GI Bill, get a little resume. Veterans points help for police, fire, even companies. Uh, Artco has an ADM vet program, which provides um, some additional incentives and, and help in the transition of being hired as a veteran. So that was my goal. And I ended up uh, leaving the 210 foot ship after basic training. I was there for about six months and went to uh, uh, communications. It was at the time it was Radioman A School, Morse code communications, that 911 operator perspective. Call Mayday, the person on the radio you're talking to is, was me. Um, so I went to Petaluma. California, and that was about a six-month A school, and learn Morse code to have it basically be removed from communications about a year later. So, uh, the end of the world happens. I I, I can send SOSs and, and I know Morse code. I was sitting there receiving thirty words a minute, and it has no value except for maybe helping out the Boy Scouts. <laughs> Stella, you be good. There you go. This is Stella. She's uh, she's the mean one. She's in charge. I can tell. So uh, tell me about your next duty station. So after that, I went to. Uh, so ironically, I had a buoy tender that I was able to uh, eligible to go to in Hawaii, uh, which I did not go to. I went to a communication station in Guam. My brother was in the Coast Guard, and he lived out there. And so I went to Comstay, Guam. And all I can tell you is it was better than, because I took college later, uh, went to college later. So it was three 12 hour days. You had 72 hours off and you had three 12 hour nights and you had 96 hours off. So it was 39 hours one week and 41 hours the next week. So the time off was awesome. I surfed and dove just about every day I actually uh, um, got my scuba instructor when I was in, in, in Guam. 
and uh, it was a lot of free time and and the work you know it was long hours you know 12 hours so it's not like you left and did anything you were resting to go to the next 12 hour shift but guam gave me the opportunity um so the pacific rim over there guam america starts to stay i don't even remember when i was in hawaii i had a guam clock but the guam time that made life easy but it's a day forward so we are wednesday it's thursday plus 10 hours, I suspect. I, don't quote me on it. It's six or seven hours ahead. Um, and then uh, after Guam, I went to Monterey, California. I grew up Monterey and um, was there for a short period of time. They, I had to extend my contract over four years to leave Guam to go to California but they were, it was a Clinton riff. Clinton uh, came out with a riff program, getting people out. So I was able to relieve, uh, leave the Coast Guard on my four year mark. I put a letter, hey, I'm gonna go to college and this is what I'm gonna do. So I, I was able to, I was in Monterey for a little over a year and then I popped out and I went to uh, school in Phoenix, Arizona at Universal Technical Institute for my uh, occupational degree, which, probably was the best decision I made and allowed me to fall into the marine engineering side on board ships really, really easy. That, that knowledge was very beneficial and valuable. So I, uh, this is about 1995. I did some school. I um, did well, I had good grades. And so I bought a house in Southern California. I had an ocean view. Um, then kind of, kind of didn't want to grow up if you can say it. I was surfing but I had to work a lot you know Monday through Friday and um, I made a decision to kind of go back in to the Coast Guard about 1997. So I was in the reserves for several years I was a radio man uh, spent some time on the LA Long Beach doing Fort State Control stuff was a Colorado River Patrol which is very similar to our Lake of the Ozarks a lot of party cove a lot of a lot of boating problems so I went to uh, machinery technician school at, that's like the mechanic. So I changed my rating and I went from the reserves to A school directly. And then ironically, cause I was making, I was an E6. I was about to make E6 in the reserves. And uh, when I showed up to A school, they called it a change of rate. So I was back to an E3 level where I was gonna be an E6. And when I graduated because of the break in service, uh, I graduated as an E3 again, an FNMK, fireman, machinery technician, not a, not a MK3 third class petty officer. And I left and was stationed at the uh, air station Brinken in Puerto Rico. That was uh, a lot of ground support. The trail, the, what do you want to call it? The, uh, was a Hobart power device that would, fire up the C-130 engines. So we maintained those, all the various support equipment. And then we had a whole community. We had houses. So we were basically your, your city maintenance people. So did that for about a year and a half. And then I advanced uh, E-5 MK-2 where I had a 110 foot patrol boat. They were gonna send me two up in Portland, Maine on the East Coast. 
And then they sent me literally all the way to the other side of the island. I went from Air Station Brinken, which is the northwest, northeast side, to the San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I spent two years on a 110-foot patrol boat. A lot of counter-narcotics, a lot of drug interdiction and migrant interdiction at that point. And travel, that part of the Caribbean um, was, was awesome. We would go out for... Generally, it was seven to 10 days. Occasionally, we would do a two-weeker. We're limited by water and food and fuel, of course. So the, uh, we'd go out for two, three days, pull into an island, hang out for a day or two, get everything set up, and then we'd go back underway. And we were always on a 24-hour recall, so they could call us out to go deal with things. We had six patrol boats in the island of Puerto Rico and San Juan, which was deemed a squadron and um i was uh basically be the equivalent of an assistant engineer on the tobo community and then later on i would fill this the, the chief role so i left i left puerto rico in about 2001 i spent several years there and then when i was on my 110 my uh my chief and then would be the assistant which is an electrician, and then you had me was third in command, but both the chief and the assistant, they had medical issues. So for a year, I was put in the chief position as an E5. So um, they had a senior person come out, and after the fourth day, he said, you don't, you don't need me, you're MK2 guy. So I ran the engine room for a year, and then what set the stage for the Midwest and the Western rivers, which totally unaware of it, except for my father was from this part of the world. Um, chief came out, Mark Fain, he's a lock operator. He spent a lot of time on the West rivers as well. He actually told me about this freshwater, this river environment. So the, uh, the Cheyenne is a river tender. It's a 75 foot towboat with a hundred foot barge, about 660 horsepower. It has, D-353 Caterpillars, inline sixes with the Caterpillar reduction gear. And uh, so we did the Missouri River up just shy of Kansas City and the Mississippi River from a little bit above St. Louis down to Chester, Illinois, which is about mile 109, if I'm not mistaken. You guys are making me date myself way back because I don't remember all the mile markers that well. So. Um, so I spent a little over a year on the Cheyenne. Uh, I will say freshwater, because everything I dealt with was saltwater. Engineering saltwater is a different uh, animal compared to freshwater. Freshwater, with the exception of the silt, because shaft packing is very challenging. Don't get me wrong there. But the machinery was very dependable. Uh, never had a whole lot of issues. But I remember this day without so we had 9-11 that happened when i was on the cheyenne and we were a country and you know we were worried we were concerned and i had an opportunity to to leave the cheyenne and go to which is now sector upper mississippi river it was a marine safety office st louis back then so i left the cheyenne i went over to the mso where i was basically the chief engineer so i took care of a like four small boats, a bunch of booms for 
oil spills and then these flood punt trailers that had three flood punts, little John boat, 17 footers with 25 horses to go to flood operations, which Harvey was where it was the last time I was using them before I had a good recovery, good rescue, but I did destroy my back on that one. Um, so after 9-11, we had these rivers and we were doing these escorts. So anything that had a barge had certain dangerous cargo, CDC or a red flag, whether it be petroleum or tank barges, basically anything that if it were to be detonated and have a bomb or a device that that contents of that tank barge, 200 footer is 15,000 barrels, 10,000 barrels, depending on rake or not raker, you get a 300 footer, you're dealing with 30,000 barrels, 1.2 million gallons. So they were worried about that cargo being atomized in the air and wiping out the population of the city of St. Louis. So our focus was high populated areas. So we would start off at the JV Bridge and we would escort them for 12, 14 hours, all the way up past Lock 27 up to Alton, Illinois. Uh, did that for, for some time. And these barges are built, was it needed? Probably not. But we were a nation in crisis and we were scared and we wanted to make sure we were ready for whatever needed to be done. And that part of that response was making sure people were taking care of it. And then that also transitioned into a big focus on law enforcement here in the Western Rivers. Tow boaters didn't like it. We'd come on board, we'd sweep the vessel real quick. As for protocol, it is what it is. Uh, I just fly the plane, we'd follow orders. And then we would escort them with two boats all the way up to Alton. And it'd be 14 hours of a commute. And it was exhausting. We had, we didn't have replacement teams. There was three teams. And that's all we had. Yeah, one thing the Coast Guard did uh, provide opportunities was lifelong learning. Education is valuable. I saw it firsthand. When I started my English and, and my basically finishing up my uh, associates to my bachelor's, finally my master's, my work product was better through education. And the Coast Guard saw value in that. So um, it was always encouraged. And I left St. Louis. Around 2005, I'm E7. So St. Louis, I was, uh, I left Puerto Rico as E5, came to St. Louis as an E6. And then I left after three years, uh, went to Hawaii uh, as a port engineer. So my patrol boat time and my river tender time added a lot of value. Um, from 2005 to 2010, I was at um, the island of Oahu, Sand Island, which is just several miles from Waikiki. It was, it was awesome. Uh, the, so Hawaii is very expensive, rent's high. And I found a place called in Eva Beach, E-W-A. Hawaii is H-A-W-A-I-I, it's Hawaii from the, from the local stance. So I uh, had a place in Eva Beach, which was on the wrong side of Pearl Harbor, but I was right at the entrance. It was old Navy house. So there was a lagoon, literally right at the entrance. And I would kayak a mile through the entrance of Pearl Harbor, 
and then the, the Navy and the, the Navy and the Air Force Base were connected. So I would get onto the Air Force Base and I would ride my bike the other 10 miles to Sand Island. So I was permitted through the Navy. I had a VHF radio with six to sunset. So you get ready in the morning, call them up at six, let them know that you're transiting, this y'all clear. And so the, the commute to work was awesome. Half the year it was dark. The other half of the year, the sun was shining over. I mean, it was just, it was a dream of amazement and the opportunities of just, just the beauty uh, was amazing. Half the year was nice and lit up in the morning, Galapagos, tiger sharks, those are Galapagos sharks, tiger sharks, manta rays. Every day I would see a different part of marine life. I had a 14 foot kayak. My, the house, it was a duplex. I was on the lagoon side. It was a 20 foot walk, put my boat in the water, kayaked a mile. So if I were to drive, it would take me without traffic, about an hour with traffic, an hour and a half, two hours. And I would have to leave it before five in the morning. So I leave at six and I'd be in my office at 6.45. I'd take a shower and be ready to work by seven. It was, it was, it was phenomenal. And um, the opportunity to surf, Hawaii is not the best diving uh, just because of the, the, the currents and, and the, the, the wave action. Not saying it's not bad, snorkeling is good, uh, but I spent a lot more time surfing out there than diving. And I uh, did that for five years. I uh, was going to make E8 senior chief, uh, but I was afforded the opportunity to, to be commissioned as a warrant officer. The first one's technically called an appointment. So from 2010 to 21, uh, I finished out my career on the, uh, the warrant officer side. So I went from W2, W3, and W4. And we don't have W-5s. Navy has W-5s. Coast Guard Navy don't have W-1s where the other services have W-1s. Yes, the Air Force has none. 1986 was their last war on us. They, uh, they stopped it. Ironically, I had my river tender time here and the MSO time. So I had about five, uh, four years and then 11 years in sector upper Mississippi River. Did towboat exams for a few years, went into inspections for a few years, and then I finished out my last six years during the, uh, the, the marine casualty investigations. And unfortunately, some of your folk, um, I had to deal with the suspension of revocation. Um, reach out anytime, I'll be more than happy to, to steer you through the, what you can do to, to deal with the situation at hand. So I finished out in 2021. During that time, so St. Louis has, uh, it's an older college, it's a brick and mortar school, it's Rankin, nonprofit. Uh, they established in 1907. So they took my UTI, my Universal Technical Institute um, information, my transcript. So I came in pretty much as a junior. So I had to do some math, English, and then I finished out there with my bachelor of science in administrative management. When I finished that, that was, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember here. That was several years ago. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. And then I started pursuing my master's degree in emergency management. Um, for me, emergency management was a, was a natural default. My time in the Coast Guard uh, was a lot of search and rescue, law enforcement, problem solving, major chaos. You're dealing with a 30-foot wooden boat with, you know, 85 people on it. 
you've got to deal with that situation. You got to get them safely off. You got to contain them. You got to hold them for a period of time. You got to feed them. And then you got to get them from middle of the Caribbean to a shore place in order for the uh, other departments to engage and, and have their conversations with them. And then I told you when I was 18, I got my EMT. Um, it was EMT for Illinois, Missouri, California. And I just received my National Registry 20-year certificate. So I was a nationally registered EMT, and it's still current for over 20 years. And I was a volunteer firefighter for 14 years. So the emergency management path was a natural transition, mainly because I had something to write about and talk about. Because master stuff, man, it's a lot of writing. Five pages for your first assignment, then you go up to 20 page papers. So it was a challenge, but I, I finished that. I graduated with honors, summa cum laude, um, with my master's in emergency management. And I fell into retirement. I said it's 30 years, time to kind of pull smoke and kind of go from there. And I accepted a job for ARCO as their environmental health and safety manager and just came up to two years. The last time we spoke, you mentioned a vessel that someone on my podcast may have mentioned. And I believe when you didn't go to that one, you chose instead to go to Guam. Is that accurate? Yeah. So you had, so you had the, the sassafras. So the basswood was in Guam, which was a 220 foot buoy tender. Uh, there was a sassafras, which was a 220-foot boot. Hawaii had two. And I had orders to the sassafras, which I swapped with a gentleman to go out to, to Guam. And our buoy tenders, we have three of them, the ones that are in Guam and Hawaii, and then our two polar icebreakers. And the new stuff, they have updated stuff. They have a dive locker and they have small units. But back in the 90s, those three buoy tenders and the two icebreakers were the only place to get on to uh, become a Navy diver, to become a Coast Guard diver. So it was, it was scuba. Uh, I never achieved that. I'm not going down that road, but that was something I wanted to pursue. And that school's in Panama City, Florida. So never had that opportunity, but I did, have done a lot, of, a lot of public safety diving in my time. There was a certain story you shared about your time in Guam as well i believe a storm came through oh so uh yeah it's interesting 19 i was young so my first so california i think the last time they had a hurricane was in like 1938 i think they had one recently but it was more of a tropical storm so i've never been involved with major wind and rainmakers. so my first typhoon so here they call it, it's a dateline thing. They call them hurricanes here and over there. They call them uh, typhoons. They're the exact same thing. Um, so Typhoon Omar, which was officially only designated as a category four typhoon. Um, I have other people who had measured winds that were excessive of 240 mile an hour wind, but that's not official. So category four or five, it doesn't matter, but it was a big storm. And, um, we actually had the eye hover over the island. So my brother and myself, we were at work and the storm hit and it was, it's kind of interesting because they used to have, well, they have typhoon parties and hurricane parties because they're, they're never really dealing with the big one. The big one happens occasionally. So in the 
in preparations for this storm, my brother had a tent house. Um, it was on the family property. So we're boarding up windows. We're, 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 we spent days preparing everything. Everyone else is like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just a tropical storm. Well, it ended up being the big one. He did lose his house. And he had a door cut in half, literally held together with three nails for the doghouse. His roof was gone, but the doghouse with the door held with three nails was still standing with 240 mile an hour wind. And um, so we left in the eye of the storm to come over to my brother's house. And every, by then all the damage was done and we waited for the second half of the storm and waited through that. And um, very close was my brother's, my sister-in-law's family um, is from Guam, she's tomorrow. So we spent the rest of the time riding out the storm in their house and then we started cleaning up, but it was a big storm, it was, it was bad. And then we actually, that was followed up by a uh, 8.2 or 8.4 earthquake, it was the third largest in recorded history. Uh, so that one, I was thought I had been buried alive, which I wasn't, it was a fake ceiling, but myself and one of my water polo buddies that we went to water, they have a water polo team there. Guam has more Olympic participants than any other nation because of their US territory status. They have a lot of people. I never went to the Olympics. I played on the club team. Um, they were eligible to go, but I'm not sure if they ever did or not. So we left water polo practice. We were at Tumon Bay, which is their Waikiki of Guam, having a burger, chilling out. And um, it's on the bay and the whole bay is surrounded by a big coral mountain. So started rumbling and I uh, instinctively from Southern California, which I was in Southern California for the San Francisco earthquake. And ironically, I was in San Francisco for the Los Angeles earthquake. So I've never never actually been through anything more than rumbles. I think I slept through most of them through my life. So this thing was bad. It was rumbling, went under a table. My buddy was under the table. But soon after, he's like, man, I guess I got my beer on the bar. And I'm like, man, I think we're about ready to die. So this, this is some, some real stuff. I remember it was like, sounded like a big old convoy of trains, buses going through the street right in front of the, that main high, the main roadway. And um, it went excessive of, of a minute. Well, they had a false ceiling in the, in the restaurant and that buried us under the table. We didn't know at the time that it was false ceiling and it stopped, people came in and I pushed up on it with my shoulder and it was, what do you say? Um, not a big deal, but we didn't know it for several minutes. And we made it out and big old piece of coral fell onto my windshield of the pickup truck I had. And that lasted about a year uh, before I left the island with that shattered windshield. And my sister-in-law's uh, family was, uh, he was uh, on the boat base and on the water side of the police department. He was uh, a, like, he was a chief of police down there basically. And it was his truck, which helped me uh, not have to worry about fixing the windshield. It was lucky, lucky, better be lucky than good. Any other stories or highlights from your career, whether it be on the Coast Guard or uh, on the uh, in the mar maritime industry? I will say I am very fortunate 
everywhere I've been has afforded me the opportunity between Hawaii, Guam, and Puerto Rico to dive countless islands. You're talking about Panape, Palau, Chuuk, Saipan, Tinian, um, down in the uh, carousel, all the, uh, it was just something that I would never have been able to do without my locations and my billets. Oh, so one of the biggest milestones. So I grew up sailing um, to Catalina, it's about 26 mile crossing. So I've done open oceans and we did Newport Beach, Ensenada, down to Mexico sailboat race. So I, when I was in Hawaii as a port engineer, I had to fill, fill in for the chief engineer spot. So we took a 110 foot ship that was home ported in Hawaii and we drove it halfway around the world and home port changed to, to Guam. So I was the chief on one of the boats. We had the uh, SAS, well, I'm having an Alzheimer's moment. Um, it'll come to me, but I don't think about it. But anyways, we took two patrol boats and the replacement for that 220 foot buoy tender uh, was a 225 foot buoy tender. And that was our gas station. So we left Hawaii, took us several weeks to get all the way to Guam. We pulled into Kwajalein. We had a handful of other islands, but uh, the buoy tender had an engine issue. So we spent six days in Kwajalein, which is a small scientific atoll. There's like eight army guys for security. Everything else is science. It's a, you can't even get there without an invitation or knowing somebody. So they have the largest lagoon in the world. So if they're doing a missile from the mainland, they want to keep it, they land it in the lagoon. If they don't want to keep it, they bounce it outside the lagoon to the Marianas Trench, three miles. So um, great surfing. The tides were 14, 15 feet. So one time when you go out, it's dry. And the next time there's six foot of water. So the surfing was awesome. It's ranked number three or four as wrecks. There's a World War I, a World War II wreck very close together. Um, so diving there and, and seeing everything else. But the one thing that was neat was they were landing a missile. So we did have that rare opportunity to see them land a missile. This one went in the Marianas Trench, so it was gone. Um, but the one thing is they don't get a lot of, they don't get a lot of visitors in Quadrant. So when people come in, the civilian community is, is very welcoming. And there's a couple of bars. I don't remember the, the original name, but they, it was nicknamed the Snake Pit because when you check in, you really can't check out. So you go there to say, hey, and everybody's buying your beer and it's like 50 cents, very low cost. So I, I thought my liver was gonna shut down about after six days because it was just nothing but diving, surfing and drinking. And, and I survived it, uh, but that was a lot of fun. And that clarity of the water was amazing. The thing is you can't eat anything because of the coral toxicity. The coral concentration is such that you that the food or uh, the fish, the marine life is not edible. That was a neat milestone and an accomplishment that I, that I uh, was able to partake in. We did fuel underway uh, from that 220 foot buoy tender, went into a stern tow and took the fuel line over, hooked it up, filled it up. And our partner, our sister ship did the exact same thing. Any interesting memories from any, uh, especially fascinating dives? Did you see what, tell me about seeing this World War II, World War I equipment underwater. 
So I had, so there's been a, I had a lot of, a lot of wreck diving opportunities. Uh, the island of Chuuk, which um, originally was called Truck, they couldn't pronounce it, so or no, it went Truck, and then it went back to Chuuk, the original name. We had caught the Japanese fleet in the harbor, so it was. There's a lot of wrecks. It's probably ranked number one. The wreck diving. Uh, which exceeds recreational boat, uh, recreational diving. So exceeding the recreational dive tables was, was quite common. Remember, this was in the 90s. So we didn't have mixed gases because no they didn't have the ability to, to fill mixed tanks back then. It was, all, it was all compressed air. So different set of tables, a lot of decompression diving. And so the wrecks were amazing. Did some small penetrations, nothing really, really big. But Palau overall, it's as clear as it is in this room. Clear as I can see, there's thousands of fish and hundreds of sharks. And it's, it's about as close to the Great Barrier Reef that you can get to. And this has its own niche because it's more concentrated and I would say even more beautiful um, from secondhand people talking about it, not me, because I never did the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, that Palau is by far the best uh, reef dive uh, that you can come across, the corals. It's just, just amazing and very fortunate. But I will go back to my youth and I will challenge you take Catalina, San Clemente Island, because you go out to the, you go off the coast. So if you're off the shore of Southern California, 30 foot visibility is a good day. But you go out to Catalina, San Clemente Island, and at Cap Island, you're dealing with 50, 200 foot visibility, 200 is on the rare time, but I'd say most of the time, the average is probably 80 to 100 feet. And you do a kelp forest with nothing but underneath you several hundred feet and orcas, anything that comes across, whales, sharks, it's just, it's like floating through a redwood forest. Visibility is awesome. The difference is you have to wear a thick wetsuit, seven millimeter as opposed to a thin wetsuit in the tropics. But over the wetsuit, I will take Southern California on um, the islands uh, as a close, close competition to plow as well as chew. There was another story you shared. I don't remember where it fell in, in the timeline of your life and career, but there was a rescue mission you were on with a, a stranded vessel in California, I think. Yeah, so that was Brute Monterey. Um, so I was a volunteer firefighter, but actually wasn't firefighting. I was, a, I was part of the fire department, but I was on a water rescue team, which we had, we would do recoveries, water recoveries and rescues. And we actually had a hyperbaric chamber. Um, the doctor who ran the chamber, who was volunteered his time, who was the emergency room doctor in Monterey, and Pacific Grove. The fire department was Pacific Grove. I lived in Monterey, but they touch each other. And he had been there since the 70s. And he dealt with a lot of great white shark attacks and one suspected worker that he could never prove. So he'd been there for a long time. And they they were a um, they did a lot of water rescue. And before, when I was at A school in Petaluma, California, I had joined a dive club and I have, I had gone down to Monterey to do a weekend dive trip and through the club. And we actually 
went to visit the Pacific Grove Fire Department, which had their, they had an old antiquated, like the size of a water heater. You, you, you went in there, they closed you up and there was nothing you could do. You were in a sock. That was your hyperbaric chamber from back in the 60s. The one that they upgraded to had a two stage. So you had a big pill box, which you could put two people on, two gurneys, and you could have two attendants. And then there was a way to get in and out. So it was a two, two chamber, um, um, hyperbaric chamber. So they had, they had a, lot of, a lot of good tools, a lot of good equipment. They had phenomenally trained people. But the night in question, uh, where I was introduced to Wendell, who was a great mentor, uh, we talked a lot. He was very influential on my pursuits in the water rescue, which I pursued later on in life. Um, we had received a call. It was a cruiser, 45, 55 foot. Um, and they had actually ran aground in. So Monterey Bay is an opening, I'd say about, about 20 miles. So it's a big bay. It's, a it's one of the larger bays on the West Coast. So they were on the south part of the bay where you go into the Pacific. When you, when you basically go south of Monterey, there's the, um, oh, it's the golf course, it's um, Pebble Beach. So that all that open ocean, when you see the golf courses, that's all open ocean. That's part of the actual ocean and not the bay. So these guys have, had ran aground in that corner. So they were really close to the open ocean as well as the protection of the bay. But so two gentlemen, um, they ran aground and um, did the Mayday thing and myself and Wendell. And then we had a, a state park, uh, California State Park lifeguard. So they were a ranger. So they had their car and that was the full-time job. So three of us went out to facilitate a rescue and we got to the boat. And uh, unfortunately, the boat wasn't going anywhere. It was hard to ground. It, it, it probably wouldn't last of the night. Um, so I was actually uh, on the boat after I got on the boat, secured the situation, had our two um, uh, mariners that were in distress. And Wendell, who was still in the water uh, with the lifeguard, I, I forget his name, but as Wendell was coming up on the boat, he reached out his hand. And at that point, his hand didn't make contact with mine. And I didn't know at the time, but he had a full myocardial infarction, which would have happened if he had been walking down the street or uh, any sort of activity. So it was a hidden, it was a hidden window maker, unfortunately. Nothing you could have done could have prevented it. So unfortunately, Wendell did pass during this rescue attempt. Uh, one of the hardest decisions I had to make was they're in the water, he's taking them in to the shore. There was not a whole lot I was gonna be able to do in the situation. It's, it's, it's rocky, there's surf. Um, so two people would actually make it more challenging to successfully bring them to the shore. So I opted to stay and continue the rescue while, while uh, Wendell and the, uh, the park ranger, the state park ranger took Wendell back to the beach. Uh, he unfortunately didn't make it. Uh, and Wendell still had a lot of influence in my future dealing with uh, water um, recovery and rescue diving. So ironically, I know I said that a lot, sorry. Uh, a Coast Guard helicopter came out and 
came out to assist. So I put the two gentlemen who, I mean, they were barely 70 pounds each individually. So very, very lightweight, uh, older gentlemen, really thin. And that basket that they brought down to the boat, I put the one guy in and I'm like, well, I think the other guy can go in. And I've never been trained on this aircraft stuff. So my ignorance wasn't, wasn't the best way of doing it. However, they both went in the basket, successfully made it to their, to the bird, they're on. And in the process of bringing the basket down for me, they had tied off a rubber Avon boat, a little Achilles rubber boat. And when they came down with a basket, which if I sent up one guy, the other guy would have been there, that prop wash took that boat and it literally lifted it up in the air and the bow line was still tough. And I had a helmet on, I had my wetsuit on and it clobbered me. I'm talking like all fours, legs, feet, everything just splat on the ground. I, I don't know if the guy would have survived or have been able to stay on the boat if not get knocked over. So it worked out for the best, cut the line, boat went bye-bye, went in the bird, went made it back. And um, unfortunately we had to follow up with, uh, with Wendell. And I spent some time with his family the fire chief. And uh, we, we did some, had some discussions after the fact, um, but that is a, that, 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 and when I'm done with this conversation, I'll be jacked up for a couple of days. So uh, that's a big, big story for me. I, I don't like telling it. Uh, I think it needs to be said part of my life. And there were so many people that were involved with it. And in the end, we rescued two people. And um, I, I gained a lot of knowledge before and after from my, uh, my mentor, uh, Window. Well, thank you certainly for sharing. Uh, I am sorry again to hear that. But um... Did you have any final message for the industry, for any listeners out there? Well, my, my role is, so without the tow boaters, without the deckhands, without the wheelmen, without the engineers, um, I don't have a job. So my whole purpose is to support um, my colleagues. So our line boat crew is about 500 people. We have uh, 29 line boats and total of 88. So the rest of those are fleet boats, 93 tank barges. And I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be in a position to support the guys that are carrying on. It's not so much the mission, but the job of maintaining our commerce. The Western rivers is something that very few countries have. We have this luxury of this river system that provides us this opportunity to move mass quantities of dry cargo, liquid cargo. And I'm a part of the team that provides just some support and help. And my background, my life, I'm, I'm a licensed captain and engineer and so I, I think I provide some help and some assistance to our colleagues that's not normally provided to a position of safety and environmental health. And I'm just very fortunate to be part of this infrastructure and, and ARCO doesn't, doesn't play around. There's, 
whatever they need to do their job, it will be provided for them. And I just, I'm a little network, little partner that allows them to pass the information, we solve the problems, give it back. And um, the one thing that's a little bit different is I'm also one of the QIs, so I do do the pollution response. I'm a third string, I'm a third qualified individual for ARCO. Um, and that's intercoastal Western rivers to the Great Lakes because our barge is going to be stashed a little bit out of our normal towboat traffic. And uh, I'm just glad to be here and be a part of the team. And I, I consider myself very lucky and fortunate uh, to be here. Well, Mr. Hanson, I think that'll do it. I do appreciate your time yet again this evening. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. This has been a production of Where You At Studios, LLC.